This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing, of course, their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider. I'm Nigel Walsh and I'm all on my own today as David has been sent to Australia. Come back soon, we do miss you. Equally, in the same spirit and as the great showman himself said, the show must go on. With that, I've just returned from InsureTech Connect in Vegas. For those that don't know, this is the largest gathering of insurance tech people on the planet. It's the second year running and all I can say is, wow. When I first spoke to Caribou and Jay, I thought, you know what? You're never going to get 700 people to Las Vegas that don't believe it's going to be a jolly. Last year, 1,200 people turned up, not the 700. This year, I know Jay and Caribou were looking for 3,000, and they finally closed out the attendance at 3,800. What an achievement, and certainly far from a jolly. I even had to explain to Jay what a jolly was in good old British English. Of course, this year's event was marred with the tragic shooting the day before, to which our hearts go out to all affected. I appreciate the many messages from friends to ensure we're all safe and sound. Insurers do what we did best and rallied together, raising a bunch of money for the charities involved. With that, on to our show. While I was there, I managed to catch up with a few people that I'd love to share with you. So with that, I managed to catch up with Darren Reffitt from Splice Software, Combining art and science to create stronger customer connections. What really interested me here was you walk past their stand and they had Google Home, Alexa and so much more. I thought, what on earth are you doing in insurance? So a really interesting insights from those guys. Just secured backing and paper from Munich Re, giving them some unique access to the markets in Europe. Tim Hardcastle, CEO and founder of Instanda. Another platform for launching products in an unprecedented times. Again, there's a lot of focus on platforms right now and getting products to market. Chris Cheatham, CEO and founder of Risk Genius, a really, really clever way of putting practical artificial intelligence onto insurance policy, saving months and months of hard work. And finally, the man with the hat himself, Caribou Honig, co-founder of InsureTech Connect, giving his perspective on the event itself. Let's get on with the show. So who are you? Hi, I'm Darren Reffin. I'm the Vice President of Marketing for Splice Software. Great to meet you. You as well. Tell me more about Splice. I would love to. Uh, Splice Software, we are a uh, customer experience uh, solution firm. And what we do basically that's a little bit different is we provide uh, voice solutions, whether that's for phone, Alexa, Google Home, that is emotionally relevant because it's not an automated recording, a cold recording. We take real live human voice and make it emotionally relevant to the situation where we're contacting your customer, and then splice in personalized data. Hence the name. The exactly, that's where the name came from. And we splice that data in to make the call emotionally relevant to you and personalize it for your experience. So do you think all these voice experiences are going to take off? Is it really, is it really here and now? Uh, all the projections are showing that voice uh, and speech-to-speech technologies are going to become more and more relevant as time goes on. 
right now we're starting to talk to our phones in public, we're starting to talk on Alexa and Google Home, and within 10 years we're going to see where people be, that becomes the norm and people are going to expect it. It's no longer going to be something you casually do in your living room. You're going to want that experience everywhere you go. Wow. So did you guys get out of bed and go, we're going to solve a problem inside insurance or where, where did it come from? Well, so we grew up in retail actually doing VIP uh, events for customers, retailers, furniture stores, jewelry, Mercedes-Benz at one point. And what happened was a lot of fintech and suretech firms really wanted to improve their brand experience. They, wanted, they don't want it to be just about price anymore. So we kind of, what we say is we change the dynamic of keeping the customer informed. We make sure that your customer is hearing from you when they want to via their channels of choice. So we kind of combine art and science. We take data to make sure we're connecting them with them the right way. And then we make sure that the, the message is, as I said, emotionally relevant. Because if you're contacting someone after a car accident, you want your voice to sound concerned. If you're asking for a late payment, you want to sound very authoritative, and that changes the experience for and the customer. Have you found the demographic that's interesting or more appropriate for this, or does it, does it, does it go across everyone? Well, it depends on the channel, obviously. With, uh, with our outbound phone messaging and SMS, we see younger generations love to opt in to, to text messaging, right. get communicated with very quickly. Uh, phone messaging, obviously the older demographics still like a very personalized experience. Alexa and Google Home, it's, it's surprising that more more and more older generations, I'm, I'm, you know, Gen X, trending towards Boomer myself, and I have everything in my home automated via, via Alexa right now, and I love when I can use that to simplify my life. Wow. So, so what insurers are using it? Is it? Have you started already with insurers, or is this the first foray? We, uh, this is not the first foray. We do have a couple insurers that we work with now. We work with AAA in Michigan. We work with Sharp Insurance. Um, we're in talks right now with a few insurers, both with this communication as well as one of our evolving solutions is actually emergency management solutions. Right. Looking at what happened in, in Texas and Florida recently, uh, being able to keep your customers informed when you have a catastrophe, notify them you know, of what the process will be following a hurricane, or even one of our solutions enables you to track your own employees and allow them to check in via text message so you know who your, of your employees is. So for the safety you mean? Correct. Right, okay, cool. So it can, it can work for customers, it can also work for any of your stakeholders that you want to make sure you can keep them informed. Well. And is it, does it differ between home and property, or it doesn't make, oh, so home and motor, or? Um, generally, personal lines is where we see the most traction, as right. uh, some small commercial stuff where uh, you as a small business owner really want to know what's going on with a claim. Uh, and then we're, we're also into uh, benefits and, and uh, life insurance. Um, you know, whether it's basically anywhere where a customer is in a situation they don't go through a lot, they're feeling vulnerable, they want to know what's going on, in insurance, that could be claims. It could be my policy application for a is whole policy. Are you still waiting for the customer to come to you, or can you do it proactively as well? Or? Everything we do is generally proactive. Okay. Um, aside from Alexa and Google Home, uh, which is a turnkey solution that we enable, you don't have to build your own thing. All of those are built as dialogues, though, that the dialogue can be leveraged for phone, for text, or for Alexa and Google Home. And the same dialogue for each of those, or different per, per channel? The dialogue goes to every channel, but right. each dialogue is specific to a certain point on our customer journey. Nice. Very nice. So one last question for me. Is this just US today, or is it global, or how are you, how you fixed? Well, we're headquartered in uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. We're currently uh, operating out of Canada, US, and Mexico. Right. We are looking to evolve into new locations. A large enough customer, you know, can uh, we could support any language. 
Um, it's just a matter of exploring what the laws are around phone messaging, SMS messaging, etc. in that country. Interesting. What about, um, what are you replacing? Is there something you are physically replacing instead of? I don't know that we're replacing as much as uh, supplementing. I mean, if you think about the cost of having a call center uh, in place at, you know, I don't know, $15 an hour for a representative to deal with a frustrated customer um, versus a, with our solution, you know, you're talking pennies per touch to be able to uh, proactively outreach that customer and keep them informed so they never get so frustrated yep. that they call a call center upset because they don't know what's going on. Brilliant. All right. Thanks so much. Great to see you. You as well. Thank you for your time. Thank you. So who are you or what do you guys do? So we are Cover. Uh, we built an insurtech two years ago and basically it's real-time insurance via OpenAPI. So we like to say, if you know Stripe, the payment solution, we like to say that we are the Stripe of insurance. So basically, on one side, we've built the full open API and a digital insurance backend on the cloud. Uh, but it's not only about a software solution. We do provide, provide real-time insurance capacity via papers from the Lloyds of London and Munich. Right. So we got their delegation of authority where we can sell a certain number of products in a certain category in the 34 European countries. Well. Um, and those open API can be implemented in any kind of ecosystem. So the same as PSD2 for banking, right? Uh, well, that's too standard, I would okay. say. We are not a standard, but it's more, maybe Fidor, Fidor, Fidor Bank yeah, yeah, yeah. could be a better example. So how did you differentiate to the standard platform play? Because we are not a platform, we basically our open API can be implemented in any ecosystem. So let, let's get the example of, of a smart TV. Yeah. A smart TV could implement our open API and when you start turn on your TV, it could propose you an extended warranty insurance and the business introducer, the one selling the, the insurance would be the TV. Or we could be connected directly into the car. Or the so wait, your TV can now sell you insurance? Absolutely. Wow. Why not? Actually, what we believe the future should be in terms of insurance is what we call invisible. So you as a customer, when you don't own things anymore, but it's usage-based, you want that anywhere you go, any time you use something, you are covered, whatever happened. Yeah. So it is the underlying service or app that is providing you the service that should take the coverage for you on real time. So it should connect via API to a real time insurer's provider. So no matter what the platform, TVs, cars, health devices, yeah. Yeah. this gives you a frictionless capability or an invisible? Exactly. Wow. On top, by the way, so this is op the problem with those open API, you need a techie counterpart. Yeah. So someone who is able to implement an open API. We did that, for example, with a car manufacturer in Belgium. They took four hours to implement our API in their full sales system and NTR selling. Now, having said that, um, for those who are not taking enough because it's a question of maturity of the market, yeah, a yeah. digital bank can do that, but not the traditional broker. So for traditional broker, we have built a white label front end, okay. which is our own front end implementation of our own open API. But white label, there is about 100 parameters that the broker can personalize. So like the logo, colors, uh, email contact. But your goal contact. is to get started in one minute. Your, your tagline was start in one minute. In five minutes. <laughs> yeah, there are two versions. There's one in five minutes. So if, I, if you can get started selling insurance in five minutes. If you use my white label solution, in five minutes you start selling insurance. So who are you competing with then if, that's, if you can get going in five minutes? 
But it's not a question of five minutes, it's a question of we need a, a lot of products and, and these five minutes, you know, is more for the white label part. Yeah, yeah. But we do believe that the future is not necessarily the white label solution because it requires an interaction between the final user and, and the digital platform. Because what we believe the future is the invisible insurance embedded in everywhere. So does that mean you get opinion. more niche products as, we, as the world moves forward? We start to get some more specialized products, more niche covers? We, yes and no. We, we, we go with the full traditional product. So okay. now we are building the class standard TPL insurance, casco, motor insurance and so on. Yeah, yeah. But today, for example, we are live with the motor gap, um, the travel insurance, uh, accident and health, and health, job loss, and the landlord insurance, which is the unpaid rent. Well. So you have a combination of traditional and less traditional. What our system can do, we can perfectly underwrite a contract for one minute or one hour. So this on-demand stuff, we are able to do it technically, but we don't believe in those on-demand. don't believe in it? We don't believe if the final user needs to make something to buy it. I do believe if it would be Uber that would directly connect to my platform and he know that, for example, he's, he's carrying you and he know you are a business guy. So there's no know. intervention is what you're saying? No inter no friction, yeah. I believe on the endiment without friction, yeah, no intervention, yeah. But you're happy to say, I'm at the airport, therefore I want airport cover, I'm out of the airport, I don't want airport cover anymore. If you can automate that, that's what your platform can do? Yeah, absolutely. So typically we're in contact with an Italian company where they know when a customer park his car at the airport yeah. and then at the moment we get the information, we push a travel insurance. So location-based service, driving a policy, and as soon as he leaves, it's turned off. So you've taken away the fact that someone's got to swipe left or swipe right yeah. to turn it on or turn it off. Yeah, we can do that from a technological perspective. The thing is that we want to focus on all the borrowing stuff and on the backend and on the API yeah. part. And we want to allow business that are good in user experience, marketing and so on, to implement the front end or to embed that in their own system. So what's the reaction from the market being with regards to this? As I say, in two years, we raised $9 million uh, and we have 30 people uh, working for us, which, you know, we are a Belgian-based company yeah. with a license in Europe. Money is difficult in Europe, so it's not bad, uh, I would say. Uh, we have a lot of tractions. We signed already 30 partnerships uh, with large brokers and car dealers. Uh, now we are starting with digital banks and so on with our new products. Yeah. We, of course, partner with Lloyds of London and Munich Re. There is a good reason for that. We believe in a global player in insurance where the, the risk carrier will focus on what he does the best is carrying the risk. And we believe of the emergence of a super giant European risk carrier uh, that will allow a lot of ecosystem startups to take part, take the front end part. Yeah, yeah. So, and by the way, when I do business with Lloyds and Munich Re, the good thing um, is that they give me capacity for the entire Europe. If I would work with uh, an AXA, Alliance or whatever, it would be AXA France or AXA Germany and, and I do it. So you want the less hassle? Absolutely. So the reaction of those local players was not good. They don't like us because basically we do, we do compete with traditional insurers. However, we strongly believe in enabling the digital broker because when we know a lot of people say future is direct and broker are dead but when you think about it a client is not a client that a commodity client a client has needs for simple product and complex product commodity yeah. product and the commodity one he can find it on a directory digital way the non-commodity one he might need a broker if we are able to enable via open api to enable a broker to be digital the broker can be 
still remain the single point of contact yeah. and he could say to his customer, look for the non-commodity product, we will do the traditional way with advice. And for those three products, because I have a digital solution, it's a do-it-yourself on my digital platform. Yeah, yeah. And because it's digi digital. So you still orchestrate the whole thing? Yeah. I like it. I, like I do it. like it too. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do before this? I worked 10 years for Allianz, right. Allianz Benelux. Uh, I've been in charge of underwriting, manager operation, um, a, a, a project what, which was called the portfolio product transformation at right. the Benelux level. So why don't the traditional carriers do this? Oh, the question is why PayPal or Stripe was not done by a traditional bank or MasterCard, you know, same answer. So people try something different outside of a big corporate? It's innovation or entrepreneurship is, is always tough. I think sometimes you, you know, when I worked Alliance, I had an amazing experience and I like those guys and are my friends. But when I was at Alliance, I was, you know, only thinking Alliance and, and I never saw the outside world of Alliance. I, got, I decided to quit everything and launch, launch my startup and you discover a new world and you get access to new ID. And so to, to be creative and to find concepts and ideas, you need to go out of your comfort zone, I would say. But it's not about ID, it's about execution. This is why you need smart people. And speed as well, I guess, because you've got the ability to get out there quickly and do stuff. Yeah, well, you need to go quick and this is tough because you need to find quick partners and so on. However, I'm more conservative than all other business where I don't believe in, in raising money too fast and too quickly because otherwise you would eat the wall. You need to continuously prove and test your concept and reiterate and improve and reiterate and so on. So what countries are you in now? So we have the license to operate in 34 European countries, but officially we are selling in Belgium and France. Okay. Uh, but, and we, we will be expanding our plan. Right now we have six products, uh, two countries. Our plan would be to increase to 10 to 15 products and to four to five countries. That would be sufficient and in terms of maturity, experience, to ask for much more money and yeah. then become a global player. Wow. Next on the sites, USA? When are you going to change the regulation? <laughs> uh, it's a good question. We, we, I think a lot of US people are interested by what we do. Yeah. Maybe it might make more sense for us to go to Pacific uh, countries in Asia or Australia. First of all, because the other co-founder, Jean-Charles, lived five years in Hong Kong and China, okay. so he knows the place. And then in terms of easy, ease to do business, it's, I think, much better in terms of insurance. Yeah. So what do you make of Vegas, the event? Uh, it's uh, something we call evangelization. So European startups are engineers. They are good to, to build a product, a system. They are extremely bad to evangelize it, you know, to brand it, to build a auto. And, and we decided that we do this engineering stuff, but we need to put our flag and our brand and to be known worldwide. It's not because you operate in Europe that you can't be known worldwide. Yeah, well, very good. Thank you very much. For Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, folks, it's Nigel here. I'm joined today by Tim Hardcastle of Instander. Say hello. Hi, everybody. Um, was keen to catch up with Instander to try and understand what it is you guys are up to and what problems you're solving at the moment. Wow, that's a big question to start off with. Uh, we, well, Instander is a platform which is being used by a range of different insurance companies across inter on an international basis. We, we're delighted that we're seeing some of the world's biggest players such as Zurich 
and uh, some of the smallest players such as uh, iFarm here in the UK that just recently won a, an insurance startup award at the Insurance Times. And, and both of those organizations are engaging with our platform and they're using it to tap into new markets and to do things that they previously haven't been able to do at the kind of price point and the speed at which InStandard can offer. So platforms are a big term these days. Everyone's talking about platforms. What is it? Are we talking about core system? Are we talking about front end? What is it? Well, it's a really good point. I think um, there's a number of players in the market that will have been well known for the fact that they cover quite a large footprint and I'd, you'd call them policy admin engines. Uh, and interestingly, my background as a CIO way back starting in 1999, I was uh, exposed first to things like SAP and subsequently Oracle and they're much, much larger in terms of success and, and presence in the market than anything you see in insurance. And those platforms are end-to-end. They cover many, many functions and processes of an organization. And I think our view at Instander is that um, what formed it and what gave us the, uh, the positioning that we have right now is we focus on a very, very specific part of the value chain. So we're a platform in the sense that there's a number of parts which fit together very well, but we don't extend into a full end-to-end type of um, platform because uh, those typically come with high cost and high implementation timescales. So, so what brought it on yourself to go and fix this issue? This has been around for donkey's years in insurance. So why did you say this is a good thing to go solve? Because the core problem that we're trying, that we're not just trying, we, we looked to try and solve, and now we are solving for many of these organizations that we're working with, is this in juxtaposition and interface between underwriting, pricing, and the delivery of a, a customer or broker experience. And that sounds simple. Uh, and we were equally surprised when we did all of our analysis and research several years ago now to say, why isn't there something available that is accessible um, to those communities, to those stakeholders, so the underwriters, the marketeers, the operations people? Why isn't there anything that's accessible that allows them to perform what we consider to be the core part of an insurance company, which is to write risk on products and make those products available to a range in the marketplace. And, and that was a core problem we set out to solve. And, and we're delighted to say that all of the feedback from our clients and the prospects that we have is that we've solved that very well. They're using the platform to do just that. So you've been going for a few years now? Yes, we, uh, we've been formed uh, in 2012, actually. Um, but we spent three to four years building the technology out. And we've only actually been uh, perhaps you could say more public uh, in the last couple of years, as we have the platform working uh, at scale and at a performance basis and having built some client experience, uh, we felt it was then um, legitimate and authentic to then talk about what we could do. I think the challenge that um, many companies face is looking at the insure tech community. I'm, I'm a big advocate, a big, fa- big fan of it, but it's quite noisy and difficult to discern what makes uh, a difference. And we believe that we should prove that out before we started talking to a wider, a wider audience. So I've seen lots of your stuff in the past and you speak, of course, in the past where you sort of the hype is, is, is far outweighing the actual what's happening in the marketplace, whereas I think you've approached the other way around, right? Yeah, I think, look, listen, as we go through technology waves of change and, you know, I'm being fortunate, I went through the dot-com boom as, as a major player in inside a big FTSE 100 company. I saw that from the inside. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of hype associated with it, but out the other side came some amazing, amazing seismic shifts in the way that business and social uh, interactions happen. And I, I anticipate that as we're going through this wave of fintech and insurtech uh, change, the same thing will happen. There will be a, a seismic shift the other side. I think the, 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 the natural course of these things, whenever you're going through the, 
the process of the change. It's noisy, it's frothy, it's difficult to discern what will be the ones that will um, be the transformative uh, type technologies that people are using and, and what the new business models are. And I think um, that's the challenge for any, any industry incumbent is trying to make sure they, they grab hold of those things that are going to really add value. And we, we believe we're one of those. So your lessons learned for someone starting out today, if you were going to start again, what would, what would they be? Well, I, I th- I, we wouldn't do it, have done it any differently. I think there's, there's obviously lots of different ways in which you can bring new ideas to the market. Uh, and there's some great accelerator uh, facilities, Startup Bootcamp, Microsoft Offer One, there's Plug and Play, which we were part of as well. So there's some great support um, networks and environment. But I think the nature of those things is they perhaps apply a magnifying glass onto things that aren't necessarily as reliable and as performant and as, as useful as, as everything can be because by its very nature you have to take a Darwinism view on it. You have to say there's a 50 great ideas but ultimately only 10 will survive and, and we just decided not to get put into that category of we're one of 50. We determinedly set out a course to say we are definitely going to be one of the 10 that survive. Well the, um, this isn't just a UK problem though is it? This, this is a global issue for most carriers that have a issue in either testing and learning on new products or addressing what everyone talks around product speed to market. This is true for every country that we that we go to? Yeah, we're, we're fortunate we're now exposed to a number of different markets, US, uh, Latin America, Australia, Europe, uh, and we're seeing from our existing clients that are in those markets and the prospects that we're having conversations with, to your point, uh, there's very, very similar trends and waves of change. I mean, in Latin America, we're talking to two or three companies in Chile, Colombia and, uh, and Brazil. And there's a, there's a high interest in UBI, usage-based insurance. There's a high interest in digital engagement, trying to bring customer-specific propositions. But the challenge they face is how do you do that in a digital way that's economically uh, attractive and presents a great business case for the incumbents in that area. And that, that's no different to what we see in UK and Europe. Uh, US has got some slightly different dimensions to it. Um, but I think to your point, at a macro level, these forces of change of trying to get to market much faster at a lower cost point, a price point, and to put into that market propositions that are much more tailored uh, to the end consumer is, is essentially a common wave of, of, of transformation that we're seeing in, in all over the world. Now, both of us had the opportunity to spend time in Vegas at InsureTech Connect. A uh, huge event this year, 4,000 people, 40 different countries represented, uh, 200 plus speakers, great event. What was your take from that, given that now you're opening up the kimono, I guess, to a broader audience and, and broader geographies? You're not the only player doing this. No, we're not. And I think, again, that's a healthy part of the, the, the change that we're seeing is that, you know, I think if I was on the buy side rather than the sell side, um, I would be delighted about what's going on, aside from the fact it's a bit too noisy. I'd be delighted that there are genuinely choices. But I think the, the choice uh, part of what's happening has got to be framed with a, a shift in the paradigm or the mindset in which people bring to making those choices. So in days gone by, when I was looking at um, implementing um, SAP, it was very much around let's choose one platform to do everything. And SAP's mantra was one version of the truth. And that was suitable for that particular point in time and context. But I think the insurance industry has got multiple different markets, multiple different consumer needs, multiple different business needs, different ways to underwrite, different um, aspects of the UX, etc. And I think the choice has got to be framed with a backdrop of, I recognize as an incumbent or a new entrant even that I need a range of technology capabilities to help me deliver value to my consumers and to my agents. 
And we have positioned ourselves as a really great choice, but we're not the only game in town. And I think that's a healthy thing, but people have got to come to, um, to realize that the way that you're going to create advantage and uh, a differentiation is to leverage a range of technology capabilities. And we're, we're one of them, not the only one. If you look at the market in general, you have a number of tier one players that would openly be the guidewires, the duck creeks of the world um, that are, have built brilliant businesses over the last couple of years to do exactly that. Is there then a new wave of companies coming in that will help address or even attack the traditional space for those tier one players? Is that what you're saying? I think there's, there's two observations I'd make. One is that um, you know one has to recognise the success of the in- incumbent technology providers. They've done a tremendous job, they've generated great returns for their shareholders, uh, and they clearly have an attractive offer for specific um, use cases that, that, that apply. I think my slight disappointment, and one could argue that why should I be surprised, but is they're using the language today of many of the insurtechs. They talk about speed, agility, uh, low footprints or low price um, uh, projects and so on. And I fundamentally don't agree with the fact that you can take a technology that's 15 years old, because I've lived and breathed and managed an, a number of those platforms, not, not Duck Creek or GuyWire, but certainly SAP and Oracle in other industries. And those technologies are designed in a certain way. They, uh, they're good at what they do. But if you bring those technologies to a pure retail or a more dynamic environment, they just don't work anywhere near as well, because that's not what they were designed to do. So our, our view and our view of the, of the marketplace is that if you're looking to achieve speed, agility, get more retailed based in your thinking and approach, then you have to plug into a much more modern technology that's been designed in the last few years, that is more web-based, that is more actually about um, allowing you to make the kind of changes, um, not necessarily on the fly, but with some governance, but some changes at, at speed that allow you to match and mirror those kind of more retail dynamics. So is that accessing new markets or accessing new parts of the business? Yeah, it could be accessing new markets, taking existing products that haven't been changed very much because, you know, to make those product changes on some of those platforms, you need to get developers, DBAs, there's a whole cycle of change and it could take months. And I think much, many more of the modern platforms allow you to make much more responsive ways of working. If you look at, if you look at other industries, we... um, some of the uh, consulting that um, we've seen in, in retail, for example, um, takes some companies such as um, ASOS or other. They're making changes minute by minute, minute second by second, because they're getting feedback from their consumers on what's working, what's not working. And the kind of technology that enables that is very different from a transactional processing engine. That, that and we need that in insurance? I believe we do. I think that the insurance is no different from any other consumer market, ultimately. Uh, that which is that people are looking for propositions and offers that are attractive to them at that point in time. And I think whether insurance will be able to get there as, as fast, well, clearly it hasn't because compared to online retail, insurance is, is, is way behind that. But certainly as a destination and direction, that's definitely, in, in our view, where we should be heading. And that even applies to businesses that are buying commercial combined packages. I think even more so, perhaps, one could argue, because commercial combined packages are much more bespoke and much more tailored for the specific business needs. But giving those businesses those uh, propositions in a, in a seamless, simple, uh, quick, accessible way, I think, is a, is a great challenge, but a great opportunity for the industry to so do So it's as quick to launch the CCP package, a combined commercial package, as it is a consumer package? On our platform, yes, it is. All right, last one for you then. So if I jump forward 12 months, we've just come back out of... ITC 2018, 
We've both had a, an interesting time in, in Las Vegas. What is it that you see changing for you guys over the next 12 months? I think it's not so much what's changing for us necessarily because we're on a, a good trajectory and we know where we're going. Uh, I think it's for the industry to be able to talk much more um, convincingly about using uh, technology and different tooling and capabilities that I referred to earlier in a way that generates new value and brings new ideas to the market. And I think what I'm looking for is the industry to speak much more positively about their experiences and actual use cases of doing that. I think back to what I said earlier, there's a lot of noise and I think it's really for the industry now to be tackling some of the challenges it has and, and turning those challenges into great opportunities and, and talk about those opportunities as we have delivered this improvement in our product, our service, our proposition to certain markets. And I think that's the thing that I'd like to hear more of in, a, in 12 months' time. You've just reminded me that. So do we not end up then in 12 months or 24 months' time with lots of these insurtechs coming together in an organisation where your old role as CIO has to then manage multiple different partners rather than just one model and they think we can do it all? Is that not a new challenge? Uh, I think that challenge has been discussed for over 10 years. People have referred to that in the past as service-orientated architecture. Uh, more commonly today, it's called digital ecosystems. But I'm absolutely an advocate and echoing your point, I would completely agree that as directionally, there is not going to be one solution that solves all problems. And therefore, every corporate uh, of any size needs to be getting uh, much better skilled internally, and whether that's a COO, COO, CMO combining, but getting much better equipped to be able to access, work with, and engage with a broader range of players in this ecosystem. Now, some organizations will take the view that's not our bag, and they may even uh, decide to use a much greater, put a greater reliance on system integrators, for example, to do that. Um, or they may decide that that's what one of their core capabilities for the future needs to be, to engage with a range of technologies, to be able to innovate, but also run the, some of the mothership processes at the same time. And I think that's the great opportunity for any company that has, gets a view on where it needs to be and recognises that its path to getting there is going to be by building a much broader ecosystem of capabilities. And we absolutely believe we're one of the... Uh, components of that ecosystem, but we completely recognise as other elements, analytics, insights, IoT, there's a whole range of other services and technologies that are required to be really, really successful. And for me, that, if I was on the corporate side today, that would be tremendously exciting to be uh, presented with these opportunities. And, and that would be what I would be discussing at the board to say, how, how do we do this? How do we um, take advantage of it? The next question is, Tim, I saw an announcement recently between Consirus and yourselves. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so we, as I said um, in some of the other part of our, our discussion, that you know, Instander is very clear on where its footprint is. It's addressing this underwriting UX um, problem. And we um, recognize it in terms of being able to get toward, much closer towards things like dynamic pricing and real-time um, event and um, profiling of the risk that we need to bring into that the insights that we gain from um, companies like Consirius because they, they have data feeds coming from different assets, different conditionals, environments. And what we can do then is start to bring that um, insight into a pricing mechanism that allows us to, to start to think about or help the insurance uh, companies think about context-based risk pricing. And that means, in simple terms, that, that essentially you can start to move to a position where, depending on where the person is, the assets that they hold, the environment that they're in, there could 
be a price for the condition or the context in which so they're So back in. to usage base, whether it's a person, whether it's a ship, whether it's exactly. a car, whatever else. Exactly. Brilliant. Well, I'm looking forward to that one. It's a little way off, but we're working on it. Tim, thanks very much for joining me. Hi, folks. I'm joined today by Chris Cheaton, founder and CEO of Risk Genius. Say hi, Chris. Hey, Nigel. How's it going? Fantastic. Good to, good to have you on the show, finally. So for those that don't uh, or haven't listened to this before, I've mentioned Risk Genius, I think, once or twice before. I've come across Chris and the things that uh, Risk Genius are up to for some time now. So delighted to have you here. For those that don't know you, could you share what Risk Genius is all about, what problem you're solving in the insurance world? Yeah. So Risk Genius's mission is to organize the world's insurance policy information. Um, and I love starting with the problem. So the problem we're solving, and this is going to sound totally insane. It always sounds insane when I say it out loud. Uh, the, the world, the insurance world doesn't really know what's in its insurance policies, um, which sounds strange because insurance sells insurance policies. But um, if you talk to insurance carriers, they have a lot of trouble figuring out, you know, what's in our forms and endorsements. Uh, what are our limits at a macro level that we've insured? What are our deductibles? That sort of thing. Um, you talk to the brokers, the brokers can't really keep track of the bound policies and what's in them and whether or not the carrier has actually provided the documentation and the policy forms they were, they were supposed to. And then you have insurance commissioners, particularly here in the United States, that are supposed to be reviewing and approving forms, and they have a lot of trouble keeping up with that as well. So uh, just a whole bunch of problems created by a pretty inefficient and archaic system uh, that involves forms and endorsements. That is the problem we're trying to solve. And, it, and so you said this is the legacy platforms. Is, is that true then for the new policies that are created today? Are, are people knowing what's in them today as well? Or is that, is that not an issue? Yeah, I mean, it's an issue just all across the board, right? So uh, there's life insurance carriers that we talk to that have hundreds of years or 100 years of life insurance policies all in paper format. And they don't know what's in them, so they need help sorting that out. Or you have an underwriter on the commercial insurance side who is trying to write a new exclusion for drones flying over the Baltic Sea. And they have no clue if their organization has ever written something similar. So how do they figure that out? Um, so it really runs the gamut from legacy bound policies to new forms and endorsements that people are trying to create. And how, how do you actually go about doing this? So dare I use the words AI, and I think it's probably an overused term by almost everyone, and everyone I meet these days say they've got an algorithm or an AI or whatever else. For those not in the know, how would you explain this to my mum? What is it? Uh, so when I think about AI, there's a lot of different types. We focus on machine learning. And when I think about machine learning, I basically think of it as a gigantic, humongous spreadsheet that a computer can understand and see similarities and patterns in patterns in that I can't actually see because there's too much data. So in my world, what we do is we take an insurance clause and we break it down into words in that spreadsheet. And then we calculate, you know, the similarities and differences and the distances between all those words that are in an insurance clause. So imagine you do that for one clause that has a hundred words in it. Now imagine you do that for a million clauses, how big that spreadsheet gets. And then you create interrelated calculations between all those clauses. And that's essentially what we've done. It's a big giant database that understands clauses based on all these crazy mathematical calculations. And so we're accessing that to find the right information for our users. 
And how would I have done that traditionally? That's a manual task that I'm basically automating now? Yeah, that's a really funny question uh, because one of my favorite stories I ever got from a user, we were asking her how she compares insurance policy language, uh, how she did it currently before Risk Genius. And she said, and this was a very forward-thinking woman, loves technology, and she told me that if she had to compare like an AIG policy and a Zurich policy, she would print them out, she would pull out an X-Acto knife, and she would cut those policies up into clauses, and then she would move them on or around on her desk manually. So that is the state of the art that we were dealing with. My God, that sounds uh, awfully painful. So you then automate this process, you, you categorize these clauses and make life easy then. So you present these back to the underwriter or the, the broker directly for them to then sift through and compare. That's exactly right. Wow. So what, so, so, who's using this today? Where, where are you at with it? Yeah, so uh, insurance carriers use it, uh, particularly I'd say the middle and large market insurance carriers that focus on specialty insurance and commercial insurance. So uh, simple, to put it more simply, like people who are modifying their language for customers on a regular basis, uh, more typically it's called manuscripting. Those carriers can use the system in order to find out have we written coverage for this type of thing that I'm thinking about? Um, or how does our language compare to other insurance carriers in the market right now? Uh, and then on the reverse side is the brokers that work with those carriers. They have to do the exact same thing, but just from a different perspective. So it's a, it's a solution for the big carriers, the big uh, brokers that focus on commercial insurance. Not just big, they're small too, right? So there's small insurance carriers, small brokers that are very nuanced in their language. And that is our sweet spot. And, and the, while you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, so great, it helps me and speeds up the process. But I suspect from a regulator perspective or even from a compliance perspective, they're going to like you quite a lot because you're going to help spot the anomalies that shouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that's oftentimes the first project we do with a carrier is help them uh, rationalize their insurance policy library. Uh, so it's a sounds like a fancy term, but it basically means we take all their forms and endorsements and we show them where there's redundancies and repetitive language. Um, I, one of our very first projects that we ever started on was somebody saying, hey, I have 20,000 commercial general liability forms, and we don't know how many times we've used a definition of environment. Uh, can you help us? And that's evolved into today. Now we have carriers that are coming to us and saying, hey, these hurricanes are a big problem. We need to figure out our exposure. And one of the ways we need to do that is to figure out how we've defined the word flood. So can you help us understand that? So yeah, policy rationalization, which is the idea of figuring out what's actually in your forms and endorsements is, is a big first step. So, so, so part of it sounds very, very straightforward. And God, why didn't we do this before? The other part thinks this is a really difficult task to then, I guess, ingest somehow or consume all those documents. What's the process that you typically go through? Is that, is that something that's quick and easy or does it take a long time? Or No, that's, that's the easy part, right? The hard part was creating the initial machine learning algorithms and the seed data that we use to make them work. Now what we do is we just, you know, we can take 5,000 documents, 50,000 documents, 150,000 documents. We just upload them. Um, they run through the algorithms in literally seconds. And then we put human eyes, supervised review on the results to make sure we agree with the algorithm results. Um, I always like to give the example, if somebody creates some brand new exclusion that has never been identified before, like, hey, we're going to write an exclusion for aliens that fly a drone into a, into a shuttle. Well, that has not been done before. And so our algorithms will see that 
they might assign it some sort of category that's going to be wrong. And our algorithms will tell us, or our machine learning will tell us, this is a low likelihood of correctness on this particular clause. You should take a look at that. That's where we overlap the supervised review on top to make sure we're getting the results correct. Wow. And so I'm speaking to you obviously here from uh, from London. You're based out in the US. Is this a US um, solution today? Or will it work in multiple countries and multiple languages? How do, how do we get around those? Yeah, so it works right now with English language documents uh, in any country. So we've received Lloyd's of London documents. We've received documents from Canada and United States. And I think we got some from Sweden one time. So um, English documents right now, we will be pushing out into non-English language documents. Um, We actually love looking for partners, carriers that want to give us their documents as sort of the seed set for uh, creating those new uh, machine learning algorithms to deal with whatever language we need to deal with. Um, What's really interesting to me about machine learning is that it doesn't care what the language is. It just sees symbols when it's looking at a letter or a number. And so all we have to do is train it on what those symbols mean. And so for each language, we often have to do some training and stuff like that. It's continuously learning, basically. Yeah, exactly. That's really, really interesting. It's, it's something I've been a fan of for those that have talked to me for, for a long time. So it's great to see it in, uh, in action and hear more about it. Um, I also understand that you've uh, won a recent award. Can you share more on this? CEO of the year. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. So it was the Entrepreneur Insurance Symposium, EIS. And they've been doing, it's interesting, they've been around way before InsureTech, right? So they saw the entrepreneurial bug was biting people in the insurance space as it has been. I mean, insurance might be the most entrepreneurial industry out there because people are constantly creating new insurance products. We just all are really hot and bothered by technology now and how that can be applied. And so the EIS has been doing this conference for like 10 years. So they did a Shark Tank event um, in Dallas recently. I think it was about a month ago. And so it was fun to participate. I got to pitch Risk Genius. What I really liked about the conference is it was industry people um, that really understand insurance. So they really grilled us on, you know, how your product will be used by the market. What are the weaknesses in your product? That sort of thing. And yeah, we won that award, which I really appreciated. Uh, c- congratulations. Cause, and, and one thing you touched on there is the InsureTech moniker itself or, or the term. And you've been both a fan and a um, open critic, I think, of this as well. It's fair to say for those that follow you on uh, LinkedIn, you're almost north of 120,000 followers. I think you are one of the go-to guys for insurance and insurance tech. Um, you, you and I both have just finished and come back from our second year each at the InsureTech event in Vegas. What was, what was your take this year compared to last year? I mean, it, that event is a must attend. Like there's just no way around it, right? Because there's so many people there and I can sit literally at whatever that cafe was and run five to 10 meetings in a day from people with people from all over the world. I was laughing because like the first day and the second day I was there, I just met with people from London. I didn't even mean to, it just happened. Right? And like somehow you even squeezed into my schedule, Nigel. So <laughs> it's just <laughs> insurance capital of the world. Yeah. It's an exciting thing. I think Caribou and, and uh, and Jay was saying at the beginning there was something like uh, 40 plus countries represented or thereabouts and 4,000 people. Is it going to get to a stage where it's too big or is the 4,000 representative of the fact that people now believe it's real and it's actually happening? I mean, I don't think something like this can get too big. I think 
you, I think individuals just have to get smarter about what they're doing. Right. So it kind of sucked, but I had to say to no, no to a lot of meetings this year and just, you got to spend, use your time wisely. So there was a lot of investment bankers that were attending that that's not really the stage we're at. So I just had to say no. Um, so yeah, I don't think it can get too big unless you let the noise get to you. So you have to use those kind of conferences for what you need at your particular stage. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it's probably the must the, the must go to event, and, and Jay and I have spoken about this quite a bit. So it's definitely for me it's a must attend. There are a lot of events though. So how do you how do you choose which ones to go to? Is it is it the the people that are there from the carriers, the fellow technology professionals? What is it that excites you about them? Yeah, I think the number one thing I was looking for was just contracts, to be honest with you, because that's the stage we're at. So if somebody was a potential contract for us, um, I would take the meeting. If I knew the person beforehand, that helped too. Um, and then, you know, just interesting things that pop up. Some, sometimes I would take those meetings. Uh, so yeah, I felt kind of ruthless doing it, but you know, that's kind of what you have to do in order to be a, a successful company and not wasting a bunch of your time. Um. Yeah. Sounds like focus to me. Yeah, it's focus. I guess right. Chris, really, really appreciate you joining me in this. Um, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, you can check out Risk Genius at www.riskgenius.com, um, or you can just drop me an email at chris at riskgenius.com, and we can chat. Fantastic, Chris. Thanks again. Hope you catch up again very soon. Yeah. Thank you. So for my final um, interview and discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Caribou Honig. Hopefully I've said your name correctly, Caribou. Uh, Close enough for sure. (laughs) I always used to laugh at David, who used to butcher names left, right and centre. And now I've fallen victim to myself. So David, my hat tip to yourself. Um, So as I said, delighted to have you here. If people don't know you, they will certainly recognise you because you're the infamous guy with the hat. But would you mind doing a quick introduction as to who you are and a little bit of background to um, to, to, to yourself? Certainly. Uh, thanks for having me here, Nigel. So um, I am the co-founder and chairman of InsureTech Connect, um, which we're now proud to say the, the world's largest um, and hopefully best. We certainly aspire to best InsureTech conference. Um, I've been doing this uh, for about two years now. Um, where uh, as part of my day job uh, uh, as an investor, I was looking around for a great conference to go to where I'd be able to talk with entrepreneurs and meet with other investors and spend time with innovation executives from within the industry. I couldn't find anything, so uh, uh, I had the harebrained idea that maybe I should try to create it. Uh, of course, I was fortunate in actually connecting with Jay Weintraub, who actually knew a thing or two about how to actually make that happen. Um, and so, uh, you know, for the last couple of years, I've had this, the pleasure of spending some time helping to create uh, the conference. Uh, for the last nine years, I've been a venture capital guy, um, uh, working in a few different areas, fintech, insurtech, uh, some ad tech, uh, as a partner and co-founder at QED Investors. Uh, now I'm in the process of uh, winding down my time with QED so I can spend even more time on uh, insure tech and uh, related harebrained ideas. And uh, before that, I spent about a decade cutting my teeth at Capital One, the uh, credit card issuer and bank, uh, really uh, learning how to apply uh, data-driven strategies in the business world. So that's that's what's brought me here.
it's a fascinating story, and I'm assuming you've not worked with Jay previously together. You you two just kind of bumped into each other fortuitously, or yeah. So it was really, um, uh, you know, I think origin stories tell so much about uh, where the future is going, and so uh, I was really uh, looking for that opportunity to uh, connect with other people interested in the insure tech space. And uh, Nigel, you and I were talking uh, uh, about how um, uh, you know. Gosh, it's a little bit of skepticism. Can you get uh, thousands of people to Vegas of all places to talk about InsureTech, right? Uh, that's crazy. Uh, but sometimes those crazy ideas catch catch fire. Uh, and so uh, I, I sort of had this need, um, had a desire to try to move it forward a bit. And um, one of the fellows working for me at QED uh, knew Jay from uh, prior life. And uh, so Jay and I jumped on the phone. He started telling me about uh, some of uh, the, the efforts he actually already had underway in the insurance space uh, from, in terms of building a conference around. And I said, this is going to be a really interesting conversation, Jay. Either we're going to jump off the phone really quick and say, ah, we, we shouldn't talk to each other anymore. We're going to be competing or we're going to uh, spend a, have a really long, great conversation um, where our, our interests are going to converge and we're going to collaborate on something. And then, uh, boy, I'm lucky that he uh, he, he uh, was willing to work with me. So I have to I have to confess. And Jay kindly updated me um, in Vegas just last week and said, you know, Nigel, when you said um, this is going to be a jolly and no one was going to come to Vegas for a jolly, he got off the phone, and had to Google what a jolly was. So uh, it, it did make me laugh. And, and I have to admit, I was re- re- relatively skeptical about getting, I think in your first year, you'd hope to get no more than 700 people there. And even with that, you were, you know, like 1,200 people thereabouts, maybe more. Yeah. You know, we, we said, look, if we can't get 600 people to this jolly, right, to use your word, then, uh, you know, we should probably rethink whether it's worth investing our time and, and money into. If we can get 1,000 people in that first year. Well, you know, that really says we might be on to something, right? And we should be, be really proud and excited about that. Um, you know, so we, we, we planned in its first year, okay, we'll have a, fa- a thousand people perhaps, right? And we'll have facilities for that. And when we had 1,500 people show up, right, it was, you know, we, we had the high class problem of people couldn't all get into the room uh, for the, the main opening sessions, right? They were out the door um, and we felt yeah, we felt bad about that and on the one side, but we felt good about it around. Yeah, we were we were on to something good. So we said, uh, you know, okay, maybe we can double this year and uh, let's sort of shoot for 3,000 people. Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, and, and, of course, as I, I think you probably know, uh, about a week and a half before the event itself, we had to move to a wait list and then a few days later into a sold-out status. Um you know, hovering in around 35, 3,600 people showing up. So um, it seems like uh, we're delivering a useful a useful product for people. I, I, so I will eat my words and apologize profusely to yourself and Jay. It is, it is definitely not a jolly. Chris, who I spoke with earlier, um, said and described it as the must-attend event. So you've, you've definitely pulled it off. I guess getting back to your, your prior life, and the credit card world, or even fintech, how would you describe its maturity change, I guess, over the years? Is it following the same sort of pattern as, as those industries in terms of, um, you know, a, a level of hype initially and then coming into the mainstream? How would you describe it? Well, you know, they, they um, 
they often say that the insurance industry is you know, five or 10 years behind the uh, banking world and the adoption of technology, right? And I, I think that's probably true. Um, so uh, I look to the fintech space and say, well, you know, fintech has been around now, particularly on the lending side, you know, is sort of been uh, five or 10 years into its heyday, right? Payments actually has been uh, a lot of the, the center of fintech for before that. But, uh, you know, the sort of lending um, wave of fintech is five or 10 years into it now. And I think that um, uh, that's actually a good leading indicator of where InsurTech is. That is, I think we're about two years into a um, really interesting wave for InsurTech. Right? Probably be another um, uh, you know, four or five years of amping up the momentum here. And, and it's an interesting one because I look at the market globally and I look, um, I think your your audience this year was probably what thirty to forty different countries attending this year. Uh, we we had over we had forty eight. Well, so, so so how do you think it differs in country to country? I've always maintained a position, maybe biased, hopefully not, but maybe a, a little bit biased that the European market was probably a bit more mature um, than the US market, whereas the US and Asia actually had masses and masses when it came to scale. So how how would you describe the differences? And again, any comparisons this year to, to last year would be interesting as well. Yeah. So I, I think that you're right, that if you look back, call it two years ago, um, I think that Europe was probably the, um, the vanguard of insure tech activity. I think that is now much more balanced, um, is what I've seen, uh, where you know, the U.S. tends to be the center of gravity when it comes to just venture capital dollars. Um, and I think that has helped uh, once all the sort of fintech VCs particularly started to turn their attention to the insure tech side of things, um, the spigots really opened up. So now in the last, uh, you know, 18 months, call it, uh, the flow of dollars to support U.S. entrepreneurs in particular has really um you know, enabled the, the U.S. insure tech system to uh, somewhat catch up to Europe. China is, of course, a, a terribly interesting place. Um, uh, absolutely fascinating to watch. And, uh, you know, I think there, if you ask me, who is the biggest uh, success story, uh, at least among startups in terms of insure tech, I think that the gold medal has to go to Zong'an. Um, in China. And, and, uh, you know, I think that you're seeing many of the Chinese tech titans, the Alibaba's, the Tencent's and so on, um, uh, also putting a lot of their energy investment dollars, uh, and, uh, sort of aspirations into the insurance space. You know, I, I sometimes sort of talk about like, it's a, it's a false dichotomy to think about, competition between the insure techs and the insurance companies or the fintechs and the banks, right? Really, if you're uh, an incumbent bank or an in incumbent insurance company, um, the, the folks you really need to be sort of watching are the tech titans. And if anything, the startup companies, right, coming out of, you know, the proverbial Silicon Valley, um, uh, which could be, you know, Berlin or anywhere. That's an interesting point, though, right? So if I look, if I and again, I was fortunate enough to attend both years, and, and and I'll be back again next year for sure. 
my, my observation from last year, it felt more um, almost creator in the early stage where it was uh, it was rough and ready in, in the nicest possible way. Whereas this year, your point about the tech the tech titans, we had uh, an event that you know and for transparency, Deloitte and Salesforce were working together on an event uh, the day before. We had people like Guidewire there, um, who I wouldn't necessarily classify as your traditional insure tech startup, but they're now part of this overall ecosystem that people are interacting with. H- how does that play out for you? Yeah, so so you use Salesforce as an example there, right? Uh, so of course, Salesforce is not you know core focused on the insurance space the way a Guidewire might be, but you know I think it's fair to say that Salesforce is now essentially a tech titan, right? They they reach that tier one upper echelon, have you know ten, tens of billions of dollars of market totally agree. and serious revenue and earnings power and so on, and I think that they can be an an ally, they can be an enabler. Um, they are they they are of course very B two B very enterprise focused in their nature so they are more likely to be a facilitator of helping the incumbents to refactor their tech stack right rather than being a, a real threat but if you're an incumbent if you're a hundred year old uh, uh, insurance company and you're spying that some of the consumer facing uh, tech giants are eyeing, uh, eyeing your core business as an opportunity for them, right? It's the old Jeff Bezos, uh, your, your margin is my opportunity, right? You've got to look at ways to, to more rapidly assimilate technology into your core, right, into your value chain, so that you can fend off the, these tech titans uh, and have a chance at you know, winning in, in that new game. So the, the sales forces of the world, but also some of the, the, the sort of um, early stage startups, right, uh, which you know, arguably will be even more on the leading edge and will be more focused and specific on uh, sort of new capabilities per, specifically for insurance. You know, I think that actually is one of the ways that the, um, that the incumbents can uh, uh, sort of evolve into over the next 20, 30 years. And if you're worried about if you you know it's sort of like if you're um, if you're Walmart and you're worried about Amazon on on retail, right? Um, then you think about uh, acquiring the Jet.coms of the world or technology providers that can help you, you know, in that battle. I think it's a similar uh, analogy here. And, and given some of your comments around some of these early stage startups, what were some of the highlights for you this year? Yeah, so. Um, I've become if my if last year one of my obsessions was parametric insurance, right? And and don't ask me why. I don't know. There's something about um, pulling the cost structure out of insurance by by moving it from classical indemnity insurance to parametric that I I find fascinating. I think my emerging obsession today is actually about the APIification of the tech stack. Uh, that is to say, I think that pieces of the insurance value chain are going to start being exposed, being available, right? Um, business to business and business to consumer through APIs, through the automated programming interfaces. And we're starting to see a handful of the startups 
um, making that available, right? Some are doing so sort of as a side strategy, as a side experiment. Some are doing it as a core part of their strategy. I think that in the next six or 12 months, we'll also start to see some of the, at least a handful of the incumbents in the industry doing the same kind of um, uh, experiments, at least. Uh, so I think that's that's really interesting, starting to see some of that. And, and of course, we've seen Lemonade open up and announce their uh, API recently as well. So, so that, that, that for me... So I, I agree with you about parametric and, 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 the, and the level of interest, interest around that. But the API economy, I guess, is following the same sort of routes as PSD2 here in Europe is doing with open banking. That's going to be a massive game changer for the industry as a whole, though, isn't it? I, I believe it is. And I believe that the this is one which plays absolutely to the strengths of the startups. Right. It's, it's just such a different DNA and mindset. Um, compared to the traditional technologists within the insurance industry, doesn't mean that there aren't people from within the industry or at the the uh, big companies that uh, know APIs. Of course, there are, but um, this is much more the this is how problems get solved at small companies, right? Small technology software companies is through APIs, you know, starting at the CEO level. Right, and how they think about it. So it's sort of API native rather than um, uh, sort of having a, a philosophical discussion about should we do APIs or not. Right. It's a at many of the startups, it's a of course you would. Right. Rather than should we. Right. It's not even a, a topic for for debate. So doesn't the shift then move from the technology as a disruptor to the actually the capability of being the disruptor? I.e. I, I could then consume or plug in any capability I wanted to, and the winner in the space will be, will, will be the one that orchestrates the right ones in the right sequence in the best way for the consumer. Yeah, so, so I, I like where you're going there, Nigel. And the way I've been thinking about this lately is there's technology innovation and there is business model innovation. And for the most part, financial services doesn't have, nor should it have, a ton of technology innovation, bits and pieces here that move things forward, but much more, I believe, of the value creation. And now I've got my venture capital hat on more than anything else, it shows up in the form of business model innovation. You need some of the, the sort of building blocks uh, of technology that gets uh, sort of established elsewhere, APIs, right? Maybe distributed ledgers. We'll see. Um, you know, certainly, you know, the the sort of capability set of smartphones. All those things get assimilated and start to show up in um, in uh, the uh, business model innovation uh, in financial services. I think that that does tend to be where uh, where the most action is. No, I, I, I tend to agree with you there. So, so where does this all go then? So we're standing on stage together maybe next this time next year or just after this time next year, um, and we've just done year three. I'm assuming you've now got 5,000 people, if I saw correctly, on stage um, at the event. What are we looking at? Parametric was year one, year two's API. What's year three hold? Year three is where some of the uh, – where some of the – customer-facing startups actually put up um, real business results, right? I think year three does have to be uh, establishing um, 
not just proof of concept, but proof of business, proof of unit economics, and proof of some degree of scalability. I, I do think those things have to show up, or people will start to get um, go from uh, into the, the sort of worry about that this is really hype, not uh, not sustainable. It's the Tom Cruise moment, right? It's the show me the money. I think everyone's been excited by the hype so far, but there's going to be a point, at, uh, which is, I think, now, which they're saying, well, where's the money? Where's the economic return on these things? And what is it going to do to my shareholder price or to my um, the value I give to my end user, be it a broker, a consumer, an agent, or otherwise? I, I think that's right. Um, I also, you know, th- this past year was the year where many high flyers launched, right? And that's good, right? Um, it's a good start to launch. Um, but, you know, and, and now it's about proving those unit economics. And I, I'm an optimist here. I do think that many will start to really prove their economics and their scalability. And some won't, right? Some will fail to prove it. Some will basically be chasing a, a business model or a hypothesis that doesn't work, right? And we shouldn't, if that turns out to be the case, we shouldn't dance on the graves of those companies. We shouldn't take that as, oh, some companies that were venture-backed didn't work. You know, from my perspective, that's the nature of, uh, of innovation of these startups. Is the, uh, I, I, I'll have my opinions. You'll have your opinions, Nigel, about which ones are likely to succeed, which are likely to fail. But what we should agree on from the start is, you know, maybe it's a third, maybe it's two-thirds are not going to actually pan out. Uh, what matters is whether you have you know, whether Zong'an is the outlier or whether it's the norm. And we'll start. It's hard to compare China to um, or, or, or Asia in general to the rest of the economy, just given the sheer scale. But I think the pace at which they've moved and what they've been able to do is probably a lesson to us all to go. Actually, there's no harm in trying these things. And if they don't work, then shut them down and move on. And to your point, it's not a bad thing that we I hate the term fail fast, but it's a. That the fact that they've tried and started means they're just going to reemerge as something else, and you're going to keep trying things until they work. That's right. The other thing I think we'll see uh, in the next year when we're on when we're on the uh, the InsureTech Connect stage is this will be the year where product innovation starts to really take off. Right. So I, I think that we just at the 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 early stage, just at the the beginning tip of seeing. Startups in particular um, reconfigure the Lego blocks of what is an insurance product, right? And how can it be reassembled in a way that better fits with customer value, um, and you know, ideally, which creates positive selection. You know, that, that's where I've always, that's what I've been on the lookout for. What I get most excited about is, you know, I think that transformational outcomes are when a startup in a in any sort of risk business whether it's lending or insurance when they are able to drive positive selection right or you know greatly reduce adverse selection depending what type of business and and i think that the the source of that right the wellspring of positive selection is product and we're just starting to see the insure tech startups um, playing around with that and take shots on goal to have new products that have a chance of driving that positive selection that can be really transformative. You, you know, you, you know, you've 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 had me thinking because whilst I was sitting in the audience listening to 
whether it was Dan Preston from Metro Mile or the guys from Ring and their passionate story about saving lives, part of me sitting there thinking, are these great products or product companies or are these great businesses? And at what point, you know, to back to your point about the business model transformation, at what point do they, you know, all come together to provide a different outcome for the client? I think that's where what some of this stuff has to go to, as opposed to being an outstanding product, whether it's Nest or Ring or whatever else. Independently, they're great, but are they going to be? How do you orchestrate them all together to create a better insurance proposition? That's right, and look, you, you know, just a an improvement in product, right? That doesn't actually have a business model around it. That's not going to be transformative for customers or the industry, and a business model. Right, that seems to work, right? And you often come across this in distribution kind of plays. It seems to work, um, but it doesn't actually have uh, any product innovation. Uh, I think that those tend to also be very ephemeral in their impact, right? So I think that the 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 real big impact, particularly when we're talking about customer facing um, uh, kinds of startups. Ends up when you when you marry some product innovation, particularly which drives positive selection, right? Often supported by some new marketing, supported by some improvements to underwriting, but really focused on the product innovation that in turn drives uh, or is central to a business model that actually does go around, right? Um, I, you know, I'm I'm talking to uh, a company now that I really like. I might do a little bit of an advisory work for them. And, you know, one of the things that I like about what they're doing is I can actually see why their business model might work, right? And in a way which, you know, offers value to consumers in a way that, that they, that um, no one else seems to today. And it still remains to be seen, do those pesky humans actually behave the way the company wants them to behave? <laughs> That's an unknown. That's until they're in market and getting enough test results. We won't know that, but uh, at least there's plausible scenarios where if if people behave this way and we think it'll be rational, self-interested ways for those for those customers, then there's a good business model here too. And you know, I, I often like to say, uh, I learned this actually from a, an entrepreneur we backed, gosh, nine years ago. The the business models and the, the companies you want to be supporting and investing in, they should have businesses which just look elegant. If there is a business and you say, well, I think it works, but it's not elegant, uh, most of the time it's actually not going to work in the long run. There's something special about an elegant business where everyone wins who's associated with the company. Uh, the customers and the supply chain and the stakeholders. When you see that kind of elegance, right, that's something that gets really special. I've never heard it described that way, but now you say it, it actually kind of it rings true and makes sense, right? And if it feels good, then you kind of want to be a part of it. So you almost create this snowball or bubble effect that keeps driving you forward, right? That's right. That's right. And and you sometimes come across something where you really want it to work. You want it to be elegant, right? Um, but it just isn't, right? You, you sort of have to, in order for it to work, something has to um, be sort of square peg in a round hole. And when that's the case, it's not elegant and uh, it's going to be running uphill to make it work. 
Yeah, there's there's an element of tenacity for any startup, but I think it has to uh, has to persist in in in, in that case as well. Um, uh, the, the other thing I'd, I'd observe as well this year is there was a lot more traditional carriers there, um, and, and I think I've always talked about fintech and banking being very almost at loggerheads and taking it apart bit by bit, whereas insurtech was much more collaborative. Looking forward for the next twelve months, do you see the same partnerships? continuing to strive? I do. So, so I have two points of view on this. One is, why were there more carriers there? One reason I, I just think is that it being the second year of the, of the event, um, we were a little bit more established, word got out. And, you know, perhaps it's easier to get the, the startups uh, to show up at year one and a little harder to get the, the skeptical uh, carriers uh, to show up in year one. So I think we had a little bit more credibility that just made those conversations um, uh, easier to uh, to bring on the, the carriers and, and other uh, sort of existing participants there. Um, but I think your point around this contrast, why, what's in, is there anything in the DNA of the insurance industry that would have them leaning in? I've talked with people about that and, you know, having had the, the experience of working in actually a very innovative um, uh, bank um, and having invested in both InsureTech and the, the banking side of FinTech, my theory around this is that there is a, a fundamental difference in mindset. If you look at banks, historically, they sort of manage everything under one roof, right? Under their roof, right? A, a bank branch is actually their branch, right? The funding when they when they lend money right, comes from the bank's balance sheet. Yes, sometimes they securitize and so on, but fundamentally they view it as soup to nuts. Right, it is all being directly managed by them. And I think that the insurance industry has, for a long time, uh, built their business model where a carrier is orchestrating some other parts of the value chain, but not absolutely owning it. So when you go into a um, uh, the brick and mortar of an insurance agent, right, it's not necessarily owned and operated and managed by the carrier, right? It's owned and operated or leased and operated by the agent, right? And the, the carriers are comfortable having third parties right, as part of distribution. It's not their own roof. Likewise, right, I think that the insurance industry uh, very much embraces, of course, right, syndicating out risk. Right, they don't need to have it all on the equivalent of their own balance sheet. That's why reinsurance exists. Right, and so I think that the the insurance industry has in its DNA a greater comfort with um, coordinating but not owning the entire value chain, and that in turn means that if if there are some startups who have a better solution for a piece of that value chain, right? Um, whether it's on the risk syndication, whether it's, you know, some solution for making claims more efficient through drones, whether it's a, an alternative distribution channel, I think those are, that's all consistent with how the insurance industry operates today. And that's actually, we, we talked um, many years ago in, in my firm around the fracturing of the, the lending value chain. It's always been fractured in insurance, and that's actually worked. So it's, it's not the same kind of change 
needed uh, in this in this industry. So, so, so that's that's a good segue, and I, I agree with you. But that's a good segue for my 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 last question. To I guess is so over the next twelve months, given both your investor hat and what you've seen for the last uh, four and a half, five and a half thousand people that have been through the doors at InsureTech Connect over the last two years, what's your advice to startups and incumbents in working? Um, better together going forward? Uh, that's a great question. So I, I think that the key to a partnership, right, to collaboration, is to understand your own strengths, understand what the other person brings to the table, and make sure that you're embracing what that other person brings, even though it's very different than uh, what you value in yourself. So I like to say, you know, the, the core strengths of the startup are risk taking, right? Speed and focus. Right? And the core strengths of an insurance incumbent should be risk management and resiliency. They've been through many cycles. They know how to survive through that, right? Um, and experience. And if a startup is partnering with an insurance company, and vice versa, they need to say, oh, yes, I understand what risk management looks like, right? And I understand that you're not operating at the speed of a startup, right? But that's actually okay. We're going to go into a partnership eyes wide open, right? And accept that so that we get the benefits of your experience and your resiliency and your risk management skills. And an incumbent would look at, oh, gosh, you seem to always be frenetic, right? A little startup here. And you don't seem to be able to uh, sort of multitask on anything but this one topic that you're focused on. But that's, again, part of recognizing the incumbent needs to recognize what that startup is good at, right? At a a cultural level. Uh, Because the worst thing where these partnerships, where these collaborations fail is when the antibodies come out, right? Where the startup says, oh, look how slow that that um, uh, insurance company is. They just don't get it. No, they get it, but they're, they have a different set of strengths. Or where the um, incumbent says, oh, look how fragile this startup is. They're not designing themselves to go through a recession. Well, you know, they're designing themselves to operate uh, differently and to get other benefits. You don't want the antibodies to come out where they, uh, because of lack of appreciation for the strengths of the other, otherwise you won't get the benefits of those. I hear you loud and clear there. Uh, Kobe, really appreciate you joining me today. Um, for those that didn't make it, would you like to remind them what the dates are next year for them to come and join you again in Vegas? Absolutely. October 2nd and 3rd uh, at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. And uh, we expect to also have some pre-conference events uh, on uh, Monday, October 1st uh, in the afternoon prior to the main conference. Is two days enough? I, I think people will be uh, exhausted enough after just two days based on what I heard from people. Uh, they were chock full of meetings and um, uh, panels that they saw. So I think there'd be a little rebellion if we if we made it too much more. I, I, I think you're right there. I think you're right. I think what's the old saying? Two days in Vegas is enough for most people. So uh, And there's no correlation between gambling and risk. I'll, I'll leave it there. Uh, again, really appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So that's it from the guests. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. 
Uh, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, tell your friends, tell your mum, tell your colleagues to listen to. I'm hoping they let David out of Australia and we'll both be back next time for more InsureTech Insider.